I love my parents. And I would have loved to have put a big photo of them up on the screen for you to see who they are, but they're sitting right over there and I know they wouldn't appreciate that and they probably wouldn't love me anymore. Of course, that isn't true. Being a parent, I can't imagine not loving my children. It is hard work, though. I believe it's the toughest job we'll ever do. And although sometimes my parents might have thought to themselves after I'd not listened to them again, who is paying me for this? I could never pay them back for what they have done for me. But my parents wouldn't expect me to either. They would always just want what is good for me. In today's passage, there's a serious misunderstanding between what God wants and what Israel thinks he wants. Please keep your Bibles open to Micah 6, and we will read from verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. The courtroom is in session. In the earlier chapters of Micah, we have read that God has judged the rich, the leaders and the false prophets. Now God widens the scope for his indictment. This is no longer just about the leaders. This is for the everyday Israelite. And this isn't Judge Judy's courtroom presiding over the death of an estranged relative's goldfish. The case God is urging Micah to bring before the mountains is serious. Why the mountains? Is this just being poetic like we've already seen in Micah? No. God sees the mountains and the foundations of the earth as appropriate witnesses to his legal battle. They have been there during all of the events that we will see outlined. God's creation has witnessed this long-running crime, this breaking of a covenant. This covenant or promise was founded at Mount Sinai when the Israelites promised to follow the Lord's laws in return for God's blessings. This covenant was now broken. And with that broken covenant came just punishment. And because of the time span of this multi-generational sin, the Lord God calls on his creation, the only ones to have witnessed it all. So Micah has announced that in this court we have God as righteous judge and prosecutor, the mountains as his witnesses, and the people of Israel are the accused. God himself begins the proceedings. Let's have a read of verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. My people, God begins. It's an interesting start. God is in the midst of judging them, and he is ruthless, as we will see next week, but he still ascribes ownership of the Israelites to himself. They have turned away from him. They have forgotten him. They have worshipped false idols and have committed heinous acts in doing so. He should and would be right in abandoning them then and there. But they are his people. This, though a plea for an explanation in the beginning of his judgment, is a remarkable display of God's character. Despite the blatant sin his people have committed, this father is still loving towards his rebellious children. And you get the idea that this plea is one of anguish and sorrow. 
What have I done? How have I burdened you? The Almighty God then goes on to explain how from Egypt to the Promised Land, he has been there to guide and protect them, not burden them. How he has displayed loving kindness. From verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Who are Moses, Aaron and Miriam? Moses, the baby, saved from the Egyptian infanticide, grew up as an educated Egyptian. He ends up fleeing Egypt only to return at God's command to save his people. However, despite what the movies, the Ten Commandments and the Prince of Egypt may have you think, Aaron, his brother, played a significant role in leading the Israelites. It was he who spoke to Pharaoh. It was he who struck the Nile and turned it to blood. And it was he who struck the dust to turn it to gnats. And despite his flaws like being swayed to create the golden calf, Aaron became the first high priest of Israel. And his turban was even inscribed saying he was holy to Yahweh or set apart by God. But what of Miriam? My understanding of Miriam before writing this sermon was that she was Moses' sister and she sang a song when they came out of Egypt. That was it. But it's clear upon closer inspection that Miriam was a leader also. Yes, she sings the song, but in Exodus 15, 20, she's described as a prophetess. And finally, it's clear in Numbers 12 that these siblings were powerful and chosen by God as leaders as they were called to speak with God in the tent of meeting. So God, through his mighty works and his leaders, Moses, Aaron and Miriam, has brought the people of Israel out of oppression from the Egyptians and towards the promised land. And though Moses often raised the staff, it was the hand of God that was at work. The Israelites at the time knew that, but the people Micah proclaimed this to had forgotten. Now let's read from verse 5. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Now you all remember about Balak and Balaam, don't you? No, I didn't either. But I think it's really important that we understand the context of Micah's prophecy. This is a story from Numbers 22 to 24. Balak, the king of Moab, summons the false teacher Balaam from Pethel, some 650 kilometers from Moab. Balak actually uh, says to Moab, I know that whoever you curse will be cursed and whoever you bless will be blessed. That's the same power that God ascribes to himself in his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. So Balak plots to curse the Israelites by paying off Balaam, a false prophet. Mind you, this is not something uh, unfamiliar to the Israelites of Micah's time, as we saw from Micah chapter 2 and 3. In those chapters, we hear that it is they who would pay the prophets to hear what they wanted to hear. But though Balaam is a swindler and wants to accept the money offered to him by Balak, God speaks to Balaam in Numbers 22, verse 12. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. God keeps them from harm and forbids Balaam, the prophet, from going. And in the end, Though Balak, the Moabite king, attempted to have Israel cursed, the Spirit of God speaks through Balaam and he ends up cursing Moab. He says that Moab will be crushed by Israel. 
This highlights the truthfulness of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis, where he says that whoever curses you, I will curse. And it highlights God's love for his people. In Micah 6 verse 5, when God says, remember what Balaam answered, Balaam essentially says, you may be offering me lots of money, but I can't curse what God has blessed. These Israelites are under God's love and protection. Now, this may feel like an unrelatable Old Testament passage, but like the Israelites, we have all been oppressed. We were under the bondage of sin, and some of us still may be. And the bondage of sin is so much worse than the bondage to a foreign ruler like the Moabites, Egyptians, Assyrians or Babylonians. For as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Let's go back to Micah 6 and we'll continue to read from the middle of verse 5. Remember your journey from Chittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Chittim is the site which the Israelites set up camp whilst waiting to be led into the promised land. In the account of the Israelites leaving Shittim and travelling to Gilgal, we see God's hand yet again. God's hand is seen in the crossing of the River Jordan. He once again parts the waters like he did with the Red Sea, but this time it's the River Jordan so that the Israelites could cross to the Promised Land. And it signifies the key moment that the Israelites are no longer wandering in the wilderness, but are stepping into the Promised Land of Abraham. So, to summarise verses 3 to 5, God is saying, hey, remember that oppression you are under? Remember those evil kings from Egypt to Moab, the land of the giants? I kept you from that because I said I would bless you. I made a promise. I have been faithful. Israel is being charged here because they should have been looking back to Exodus. They were forgetting the time where God was guiding and protecting them. We forget too. Whenever we feel like our Christian life is a burden, when we feel like that we need that two-day weekend, some time off from church, when we feel our offerings could be better spent, when we feel like loving someone is too hard, we need to look back. We need to look back to the cross and remember the grace of God. We need to remember that the fact that in a just world, we would be hopeless with nowhere to turn. But with the cross, we have freedom, freedom from a life ravaged by impurities, freedom from our sin from our guilt, from our death. Micah now crosses the floor of the courtroom and takes the voice of the defendant, the Israelites, from verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. To me, this is saturated with irony and really highlights just how much Israel has isolated themselves from God. God has just reminded his people about how he saved them from Egypt and he highlights the particular story about Balak, the Moabite king, the king who tries to buy the curse of Balaam and effectively of God by offering sacrifices. And what's the reactions of the Jews? Verse 6 again. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted king? What can we give God to make him feel better towards us? 
calves, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, my firstborn. They just don't get it. Now, to be fair, they are trying to make amends, but they do so with an ever-increasing value of sacrifice to the point of absurdity. The problem here is that their knee-jerk reaction is religiosity. What can I do to appease God? What can I do to fix this relationship? The fact of the matter was, Israel did feel burdened by God. They were bored of God. Bored to the point where they were either worshipping other gods or just being religious. Now, when I say religious, I'm not talking about being Christian. I'm talking about a religiosity where someone goes through the motions of being religious. Religious in the way that it was just part of their culture. They did not have a true relationship with God. They didn't even understand him. Is this us? Are you burdened by God? Are we in a right relationship with God? I think some people who sit in church think they're in a relationship with God, but it's the wrong relationship. They think their offerings, their money in the offering plate, their sacrifices, their time on a Sunday or a weekday at Bible study or their time on a Saturday working bee, they think that that is what the Lord requires. And it's a simple trade. You give me this and I'll give you that. God doesn't care about money. What was, what, what's God going to do with that? Time? God lives outside of time. Now don't get me wrong, these things are good, but it isn't about the time or the money. It's about the offering in relation to the motivation of the heart. These things are good if it comes from a heart that wants to follow Jesus. When the Israelites pleaded with, what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? The truth was the calf, the rivers of oil, the firstborn, it wasn't enough. It was not enough. Micah tells us in verse 8 what God wants. From verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what does the Lord require? To act justly, love mercy, or to love kindness, as some translations like the ESV will say, and to walk humbly with God. What we have in that famous Micah line are some very big terms. He requires his people to act justly. Unlike the Jews in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where they are plotting wickedness, seizing land that is not theirs and taking a man's inheritance. Or in Micah 3, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where the leader's oppression is likened to cannibalism, such is its barbarity. Or in Micah chapter 3, verse 11, where the judges, priests and prophets can be paid off. That isn't justice. The Israelites were required to love kindness, unlike in Micah chapter 2, verse 9, where they were driving women from their homes and in doing so taking from the children as well. That is not loving kindness. And they were required to walk humbly with their God, unlike the proud leaders in Micah chapter 3, verse 11, where the leaders say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. That is not humility. And we know that. We know that that is pride. Though I think we have a misunderstanding of what humility actually is. Humility is not 
self-deprecation. It's not about bashing ourselves up. Humility is recognising the truth of the reality of our standing with God. Humility is recognising the truth of the reality of our standing with God. Because some people try to look at it like this, on a subjective scale of righteousness. You can see here down the bottom, on the unrighteous side, are Hitler, Stalin and Darth Vader. And then a bit further up is you and me. And then higher than us is some righteous people, like C.S. Lewis and the Apostle Paul. Some would say the epitome of mortal human righteousness. And sometimes people think that being humble is when we push ourselves up too high on this scale of righteousness and we need to beat ourselves down again to bring ourselves down a few notches. But the reality of being humble is to recognise this. Our righteousness cannot compare with the perfect nature of God. It just isn't even a comparison. It isn't even on the same scale because we are not righteous. We are unrighteous. Once again, this is not self-deprecation. This is just a realisation of where we stand. He is righteous. We are not. So what does it mean to act justly, love kindness, and walk with God humbly as Christians today? Well, without doing a sermon on each one of these attributes, which could be done, but I'm not going to do, let me give a brief overview of what we can expect in our daily lives if we're following what Micah and indeed God says. Justice. The idea of what you do is being fair and being right all the time is what justice is all about. As a Christian today, we should be a shining light for justice in all that we do. Being just at work means that we don't take the easy way out. As Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. We fulfill our work requirements as required by our employer, not how we think it should be. We don't chuck a sickie just because we have too many of them and we don't claim that invisible laptop when the opportunity is given by the too trusting accountant. At home, being just means we share the load fairly with our partner when it comes to doing the housework or maintenance or looking after the kids. It doesn't mean it has to be a 50-50 split, but you are both parents. There isn't a breadwinner in a parent and there isn't a childminder in a parent. And as that parent, justice means that we should be fair in our approaches to discipline, not punishing too harshly or letting the kids get off the hook either. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. At church, justice looks like serving on the roster, just as others serve you, because that is fair and that is right. Of course, the motivation has to be there. You have to have loving kindness. Loving kindness, a second attribute, is so easily seen in Jesus' life. It's like the level up of doing justice. Doing justice is right, but loving kindness, as Richard Phillips says, is to look on the weak and vulnerable with the eyes of God's love and give them not just what they deserve, which would be justice, but what they need 
It is really the idea of pouring out grace upon someone. Jesus obviously acts this out, but he also speaks about it, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. This parable is actually addressing the question of who is my neighbour, but listen to how Jesus speaks of this neighbourly character and how we can see who is neighbourly. I'll skip the verses about the priest and the Levite who go over the other side of the road and read from Luke 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. How does the Samaritan love his neighbour? He doesn't just give money to the salvos and hope that they help him out. He doesn't just go to church and pray for him. He uses a substantial amount of his time, his resources, his money to care for this man. He doesn't just leave him after that. He follows up on him. Is this us? Is this what we're doing? I want you to think what you would have done in this situation. Are there occasions where you would pass on the other side of the road rather than help those who need your grace? the grace that is supposed to reflect the grace shown to us on the cross. I know I cross to the other road sometimes. Is our church really showing neighbourly love to others? Are we really loving kindness here at Gympie Presbyterian Church? And how can we show loving kindness even more as a church? I certainly don't have all the answers, but we as a body of Christ need to be looking for them. And I think that would be something great to discuss at morning tea. How can we show loving kindness more as individuals and as a church? Walking humbly. Last but not least is walking humbly with God. Notice that we are to walk humbly with God. That is the key word, with. Walk with God, not in front of him or for him, with him. This once again reflects the relationship we have with God. It reminds me a lot of King David. Without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest king Israel had in the Old Testament and one of the most powerful. But what is it that stands out about King David above all the other kings? It is surely his humility in the way that he walks with and leans on God. When you read through the Psalms, you can tell that the relationship was not of master and slave because there wasn't just a following of master's orders. There was love and adoration. There were pleas and desperation. There was repentance and restoration. David's relationship was ongoing, passionate and unwavering, a model of how we should walk humbly with our God. These, like I said, are huge concepts, and I don't do them justice in my small little explanation today. Micah 6.8 is a reflection of what Jesus says are the two greatest commandments. To love the Lord with all your, Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And to love your neighbour as yourself. The first and greatest commandment is seen in walking humbly with God. If you are walking humbly with your God, you are loving him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You are loving him in that way because you recognise the relationship that you have. And you recognise the impact 
of what God has done for you. You are following God's will with the recognition that you are created in God's image and are precious to him, while not thinking that you deserve any of the blessings that you receive. The second commandment, to love your neighbour as yourself, is reflected in the first two requirements of verse 8, act justly and love kindness. To finish up, pay attention to the first part of the first sentence in verse 8. God has shown us what is good. Justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God, they are what is good for people. God is showing the Israelites and us here today what is good for us. He, like my parents, just want what is best for me. And by his spirit, our spirits, minds and motivations are changed so that we can enjoy the goodness that God outlines here, so that we can enjoy acting justly, enjoy showing loving kindness and enjoy walking humbly with God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that we can have the freedom to walk with you rather than be enslaved by sin. We ask that you would help us to remember the grace by which you have saved us so that we might walk humbly with you and show grace to those around us through fairness and loving kindness. Amen.